When most people fly between North America and Europe, they rarely think much about what they're flying over. But to Simon Winchester, you're flying over centuries of turmoil and discovery, and there's a lot more to the Atlantic than meets the eye. All the ocean really is to most of us these days is just an inconvenient expanse of distance. But what you are flying over, it's full of history and romance and daring do, and we should care for it a little more than we do. I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we consider what the busiest ocean in the world has to say to us. And Reverend Jim Wallace shares how his travels have sharpened his perspective as a religious leader. Two countries side by side, and going to the one I wasn't supposed to be in taught me most about the one I was already in. Glenn Beck says Jim Wallace is one of the most dangerous men in America. Well, from his point of view, I hope that's true. The power of our travels to teach us about our place in the world. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Instead of exploring a particular destination today on Travel with Rick Steves, I think you'll find that today's guests will help us find a big-picture view of the voyage we're all on together. Reverend Jim Wallace advocates for the needs of people Jesus called the least among us. He joins us in just a bit to explain how traveling to places others warn you about opened his eyes to the needs of others. We'll start today with author Simon Winchester. His latest book sums up years of research and travel. It shares the epic tales the Atlantic Ocean can tell us, dramatic tales about our history, influences on today's modern world, and a prognosis for the planet's health. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. You know, like so many travelers, all my life I've flown over the Atlantic and hardly think about that huge body of water we're going over. Uh, well, Simon Winchester is different. Simon Winchester's written a number of uh, great books, a best-selling author of Krakatoa and The Professor and the Madman. His latest book is called Atlantic. Great sea battles, heroic discoveries, titanic storms, and a vast ocean of a million stories. And Simon Winchester's book reads like a biography of the ocean itself. Simon joins us now to talk about the Atlantic. Simon, thanks for being with us. A great pleasure. What kindled your interest in the Atlantic Ocean? First of all, I think it was born out of a failure of an earlier book I wrote when I lived in Hong Kong about the Pacific Ocean. Um, everyone told me the Pacific was the ocean of the future, and so I drank the Kool-Aid, as it were, and wrote a book. I spent about two years wandering about all over the Pacific, from sort of Kamchatka to Chile and Australia to Alaska, and wrote a book which was something of a commercial failure. And I think largely because, although it may well be true that the Pacific was the ocean of the future, whatever that actually means, what it really wasn't was the ocean of the past in terms of the human experience. Because although you might have had you know, Magellan and Captain Cook and the Polynesian navigations, there wasn't a great historical richness to it. Whereas when I sat down to think about it, there clearly was, when it came to the Mediterranean, it could fairly be said that the Mediterranean was the inland sea of the classical world, if you like. And by extension, the Atlantic, I thought, was probably actually the inland sea of the modern Western world. And I thought, well, basically, I'd backed the wrong horse in writing <laughs> about the Pacific. So I decided, basically, after reading a, an extraordinary book that I also found in the Pacific, in Chile, in a library there, about an amazing rescue that took place in southwest Africa, or what is now Namibia, in the 1940s. And that I'd got this vague idea that I wanted to write a book about the Atlantic and then this reading this book about what's called the Skeleton Coast in, in Namibia, that sort of pushed me over the edge and I began the research about two or three years ago. I like that idea. Maybe the Pacific's the ocean of the future, but the Atlantic is certainly the ocean of the past. You wrote in your book as when you look at the Earth from space, given the fact that the Pacific's a lot bigger than the Atlantic, it, it looks like the Atlantic separates the civilized you know, the, the humanity more closely, as the Mediterranean did in the classic world. And then I read also in your book, in the Eastern Hemisphere, they refer to the Atlantic as the Great West Sea. And indeed, they used to refer to the Atlantic as the Okeanos Ethiopicos, the African Ocean. Ethiopicos was the old Greek name for Africa. So it's had many names, uh, but Herodotus essentially named it, not having been there, but was aware that the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, named because they seemed to support the heavens, ran down into this great body of water. And so it was the ocean of the Atlas Mountains, the Atlantic Ocean. You write very vividly about your first trip across the Atlantic. You're 18 years old, 1963. 
seven-day cruise from Liver not a cruise, seven-day voyage from Liverpool to Montreal. He spent six months' wages making this trip with a bunk <laughs> bed without windows. What a gr- How did you remember that so vividly, or did you take notes 50 years ago? No, but it's quite extraordinary. I, I went on this voyage, and I remember every little detail about it, including the fact that we, five days out from Liverpool, in the middle of the night, we, when I was out on deck, because I was straining to see the first lighthouses of North America, and uh, we suddenly stopped for no apparent reason. The, the boat, which had been hissing along at 25 knots, there was a sort of clanging of bells, and then it suddenly the engines faded away, and we glided to a halt, and all it was was just the slapping of the waves against the hull. Well, it turned out we were waiting for a sort of mid-ocean rendezvous with a Royal Canadian Air Force bomber, which dropped an emergency packet of medical supplies from a parachute. And that also made the journey that was in any case memorable for me as a young schoolboy, really, into a super memorable moment. But the odd thing was that... um, A few weeks ago, I was in Cheltenham in southern England at a literary festival, and I'd given a a talk in which I'd included this first voyage, because it was so memorable, on the Canadian Pacific ship called the Empress of Britain. And a woman came up to me, a middle-aged lady, in the signing line, and she said, I'm so sorry I, I wasn't able to come to your talk, but I've been looking for you for the last... 25 years, and it's somewhat alarming when <laughs> ladies do that. You think, oh, my God, is there a 25-year-old son standing next to her? <laughs> but mercifully, it wasn't that at all. She simply said, I have one question. Were you ever on a ship called the Empress of Britain? And I said, I most certainly was, and I actually wrote about it. This was a seminal journey for me. She said, me too. Have a look at this. And out of her handbag pulled a diary, which she had written, emigrating to Canada, exclamation mark, 30th of April, 1963, So this is the beginning of my new life. I've just set out on the Empress of Britain and we're sailing away from Liverpool now. We've just had lifeboat drilled. I'm feeling very miserable about leaving all my friends in Britain. But I've just met this nice boy called Simon who's going off to America to hitchhike around Canada and the United States for a year before going up to university. And he bought us a bottle of wine for dinner and then we played cards. And I just thought that was absolutely amazing after, what, 47 years or something, that this woman should have come to a literary festival with that document. That is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Now, this was quite a, a pivotal voyage because that was the beginning for you, and it was, in a sense, the end of an age of travel. And none of us knew it at the time that that uh, the voyage of, of uh, I think it was voyage one one five of the three one of the there were three of these liners known as the White Empresses the Empress of Britain the Empress of Canada and the Empress of England I think, and um, it turns out that the business was collapsing because of air travel and uh, jets were just coming in, and so there were to be I think only five more voyages of the Empress of Britain, and by extraordinary coincidence when I flew back as scheduled on a propeller-driven plane which went from what was then Idlewild Airport in New York to Gander in Newfoundland to Shannon in Ireland, eventually to Brussels because we didn't have permission to land in London. We overflew, and I didn't know it, the Empress of Britain making her last eastbound passage ever because this was really the end of the great liners used as liners as opposed to cruise ships. So it was, was very much the beginning of an era for me, a love affair with the ocean, oh. but the end of an era for liners. So in the 60s, these great liners were uh, relatively new, and but they just had a new business environment where they weren't viable. Where did they end up? They didn't just uh, mothball them, did they? No. In the case of the Empress of Britain, she was taken over. I think Canadian Pacific kept on to her for a few more years, but used it for cruising, taking people to the Caribbean and places right. like that. Then it was sold to Greek owners and was still afloat a year ago, it was uh, used as an educational vessel by some Japanese peace foundation, and I, I saw pictures of it. Still unmistakably the same shape. It had been launched by the Queen and the Clyde in Scotland in the 1950s, I think, 1958 or so. And um, she her same engines, same hull, different colors, mm. but then she was taken to the breakers' yards, I think, in, in southern India and is now... Mm-hmm. turned into razor blades. Oh, razor blades. Now, that was, uh, you were 18 years old. Did you did you take the liner just because that was the economic way to come to America, or did you want to take a sea voyage rather than fly? Oh, I think I wanted to take a sea voyage. It was possible, and I think cheaper to go by air. Okay, even then. Um, so I just yeah. wanted to um, 
to be at sea, and I just the, the whole romance was amazing. People don't experience the Atlantic anymore. We fly six miles above this gray, vast, you know, nothingness in five or six hours, and you were standing on the deck, you know, uh, hoping they were dodging the icebergs. That's a, a different way to experience uh, the trip. Well, and I'd even argue that those who travel on these cruise ships today are almost kept away from the ocean. If you look at them, they have very little deck space. And the idea of sort of leaning over the taffrail and smelling the sea air and uh, getting the wind in your hair and looking at seagulls and so forth, no, they want you down below feeding money into the slot machines in the casino or going to the fancy restaurants or buying Prada shoes. So Mm -hmm. a, a maritime experience is no longer a maritime experience. But the general point you make that flying across the Atlantic by air All the ocean really is to most of us these days is just an inconvenient expanse of distance. You look at that little map on the seat front in front of you, just unrolling with incredible and irritating slowness. And you're Mm -hmm. always just pinioned (laughs) somewhere between Greenland and Newfoundland and thinking, when is this going to be over? But what I tried to do with this book is to remind people that what you are flying over is the sort of cockpit of so much human activity for so long a period. It's full of history and romance and daring mm. do, and we should care for it a little more than we do. Before we leave the liner, I'm just dying to hear about 11 a.m. bouillon on the boat deck. <laughs> yes, my wife liked that idea. We found the old timetable because the Canadian Pacific Archives in uh, in Montreal had all the details of the journey, and indeed, every morning at 11 o'clock, the bell would be sounded, and you'd be sitting on the boat deck under a blanket in a reclining chair, and a steward would come round with hot beef tea, bouillon, <laughs> to keep away the winter weather. This is the kind of thing we did. Now, of course, we're in bikinis, if we're a woman, of course, um, on the deck of a <laughs> Caribbean right. ship. But in those days, it was muffled up to the eyeballs, bitterly cold, looking at the great heaving Atlantic and drinking hot beef tea. And couldn't be a more heavenly experience as far I as would, I'm concerned. I would love to have that experience. I'm speaking <laughs> with Simon Winchester. His new book is Atlantic. Great sea battles, heroic discoveries, titanic storms, and a vast ocean of a million stories. This is like the grand biography of, of the ocean itself. The Atlantic was born today, and I'll tell you how. The clouds above opened up. We'll talk about the earliest discoverers to cross the Atlantic from east to west in just a moment. And we'll also see if there's evidence of voyagers from the New World to reach Europe back in the days before Columbus. Our guest is Simon Winchester, and the discoveries we're talking about are included in his book Atlantic, an extensive biography, if you will, of the Atlantic Ocean. A little later in the hour, the Reverend Jim Wallace talks about his travels and explains how they've influenced him as a leader for social justice issues among progressive-minded American Christians. You can share your thoughts with our online community of travelers. There's a feedback form for your comments and travel reports in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the Atlantic with Simon Winchester, whose latest book is called Atlantic, Great Sea Battles, Heroic Discoveries, Titanic Storms, and a Vast Ocean of a Million Stories. Simon, let's go back to a more rugged age. Uh, We've got all of this discussion about who actually crossed the Atlantic first. 
Columbus gets a lot of credit. A lot of Norwegians root for the Vikings. I've been in Basque country where they firmly believe they went across first. And in the west coast of Ireland, uh, a lot of people are really into St. Brandon, right? What's your take on that? And, and what's the most striking lack of understanding we have about who crossed the Atlantic first? Well, I mean, there are, as you say, four contenders. Christopher Columbus, an anonymous Basque, an anonymous Irishman, possibly St. Brendan, or the person who is, in my view, the unassailable winner of this competition, and that is Eric the Red's son, Leif Erikson, who we know, because he left a settlement behind, um, was the first person to land in North America. And that settlement, and this was one of the problems, was only discovered in 1960. There's an awful lot of the Atlantic that I believe still hasn't been discovered. 1960, a pair of archaeologists were casually asking a farmer in northern Newfoundland, and they've been there every year asking other farmers the same question, is there any evidence of anything you might think of as a settlement up here? Because we think that Norsemen probably came here first. And he said in a very casual way, yes, at the bottom of that meadow over there, there are a lot of humps, which I've always thought hide something like a settlement. But my only question to you is, what took you so long? And they went down to the field and tore away some of the earth and found these perfectly preserved sod-covered houses which had been built, we now know, 1001 AD, 1001 AD, the first European settlement wow. in North America. And in that, I mean, all sorts of implements that showed they kept cattle and had practiced agriculture. But they also, and I think most important of all, they conceived and had a child. And the first European child ever born in North America was born in Newfoundland at this place, which is called Lanzo Meadows, in 1002 AD. And we know his name. He was called Snorri Thorfinnsson. <laughs> and Snorri and his parents and other Norwegians lived there only for about six or eight years because the weather was so atrocious. They thought, why can't we go and have similarly atrocious weather back home among all our friends? And so they got back into the little boats and sailed back to where they had come from. And this is, of course, the big difference with Columbus, who certainly didn't get there first. He was 491 years later, but he sailed into warm waters where there were abundant potential for growing crops and things, and what his successors then settled there. And the rest, of course, is history. I was up in Scandinavia in 1992 when they launched a Viking ship in order to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Columbus not discovering America. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Simon, we always hear about uh, Europeans trying to get to the New World. Has there ever been any indication that people in the New World tried to get to Europe? There is a little bit of evidence, but nothing conclusive. I mean, there's the suggestion, which has amazed a lot of people, that uh, coca leaves were found in the sarcophagi found in the Nile Valley, which sort of suggests that Aztecs or Mayans might have come to the Mediterranean. Mm. But it's very, very circumstantial. It's a puzzle, but it's no, no proof. And there was also marginalia in a book that Columbus had uh, when he went to Ireland in about 1485, I think it was, where he claimed to have seen the bodies of two people in a dugout canoe, which others think might have been Carib Indians from the Caribbean. Hmm. But other than that, there's very little evidence of eastbound travel, which would have been far easier to accomplish because they had uh, the Gulf Stream behind them and, and the prevailing winds. But no, it was the Europeans that got to the north before North Americans got to Europe. When we think of civilizations migrating and so on, it's it's fascinating. You, you wrote about poor people would generally have a one-way ticket, west only, whereas historically wealthy people would have a round-trip ticket. And you talk about Ireland's teardrop. That's uh, Fastnet Rock, the two big lighthouses, north of Ireland, Inishtrahull, southern Ireland, Fastnet Rock. And most traffic between Liverpool and New York would go round the south of Ireland, and the last thing that the emigrants that were bound for on one-way tickets to Ellis Island, the great processing centre um, south of Manhattan Island, they would pass Fastnet Rock and the lighthouse there, the great, beautiful granite lighthouse, and that the winking of that light would be their last hmm. scene of Ireland, and they would be weeping, and they would regard that as Ireland's teardrop. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Simon Winchester, who's written a fascinating book called Atlantic. Great sea battles, heroic discoveries, titanic storms, and a vast ocean of a million stories. He holds the distinction of being made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. His website is simonwinchester.com.
Simon, the Atlantic has famous tragedies throughout history. What are a couple of the tragedies you find most interesting that happened on the Atlantic Ocean? Well, I think that the, emblematically the most tragic of all events was the period of the slave trade. Um, you had this, what was known as the triangular trade, ships loaded with cargo, trade goods would come down from the ports of uh, like Liverpool and Glasgow and Bristol, down to Africa, would then load up with slaves from these famous castles or infamous castles, so-called. President Obama visited one of them a year or so ago, where these slaves are shackled, put on the ships and in the most dreadful conditions, are sailed westwards across the Middle Passage, as it's so-called. And I quote some particularly tragic and heart-rending descriptions of the kind of things that went on, the maltreatment of these poor, poor people who were not treated as people at all. And then they were sold on the other side on, in the slave ports and the ships were then scrubbed down with lye and loaded up with tobacco and cotton and went back on the third leg of the journey uh, to Britain. And of course, great fortunes were made and, and tourists go today to enormous castles and palaces built in Britain, not knowing at all that they were built on the back of one of the most tragic episodes. I have always thought it quite amazing that the hymn Amazing Grace was written by one of Britain's most notorious slavers. Uh, the order of what happened was simply this. He was a slaver. He made a lot of money. He was appalled at what he had done in middle age. He converted to Christianity. He became a vicar and then composed the hymn Amazing Grace. So every time you hear that song or that hymn, it should be remembered that this is by way of being an apology for the terrible things that he had been involved in before. And a reminder that Britain was in on the action just like the United States when it came to taking advantage of the slave trade. Oh, Britain, more culpable in many ways than, than the United States. But interestingly, the last slave who was brought over on a ship, a man called Cudjo Lewis, died only in 1935. So this is a, the memory is still fresh in many, many people's minds and, and just as well that it is. That was a long-term tragedy, but there were also shipwrecks. The wreck or the foundering that everyone remembers is, of course, the Titanic. And I was particularly interested, too, in the, the collision of two liners, the Stockholm and the Andrea Doria in the 1950s off New York with considerable loss of life. But the one that I'm sort of most personally connected with happened not far from where I was brought up in the southwest of England. This enormous American tanker, Liberian flagged, of course, um, or Panamanian flagged, uh, was coming northwards with full to the gunnels of uh, heavy crude oil. And uh, essentially, they had got it in automatic steering. They tried to avoid some, what's called the Seven Stones Reef off the Scilly Islands, off southern Cornwall. And they tried to spin the wheel, but couldn't because it was on automatic. They rang down to someone to help, and it turns out he was the cook. And uh, anyway, it was a series of calamities which resulted in them ramming at full speed into this most appallingly razor-sharp rock. Hmm. And the tanker split in two, and it spilled its entire cargo, a huge cargo of crude oil, which was devastating. One of the odd things about it was that, finally, the British government decided the only way they could get rid of the oil was to set it on fire by bombing it with napalm. Mm. And this, um, for the first time, revealed to the British public that the British government, the Ministry of Defence, had stockpiles of this awful weapon, which was being, at the time, used in Vietnam, and which we, the British, said, oh, this was a disgraceful weapon. Well, we had it. We used it. But then when our bombers came to try and bomb the floating oil, they missed. So it was a complete disaster mm. on all levels, public relations and practical. Oh, my goodness. That was in 1967, wasn't it? Indeed it was, yes. And the photograph in your book is just breathtaking. Simon, survey in your mind the architecture and the monuments on the whole rim of the Atlantic and which ones come to mind that really represent the history of these movements of people. The Royal Liver Building in the, on the seafront of Liverpool itself, uh, the Custom House in New York Harbour in, in southern Manhattan, uh, the great buildings along the waterfront in both Montevideo, uh, Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro, which seem very much uh, born in and of the Atlantic, Cape Town, the great buildings which also under Table Mountain celebrate the, the sea. But to me, the prettiest of all, uh, so organically connected to the ocean, is a town that very few people will be able to go to, and that is Jamestown, the capital of the island of St. Helena, which is in the middle of the Atlantic. It's where Napoleon was exiled after Waterloo. This exquisite, perfectly preserved little regency town with a little castle, little cathedral, mm. little courthouse, and all tricked out with 
anchors and mermaids and seahorses and done in beautiful pastel colours. And it just says, I am a city of the sea, a city of the Atlantic. It's wow. a wonderful place to see. On St. Helena. In Indeed, on, it's actually pronounced St. Helena. St. Helena is ah. the place in California where ah, okay. um, Jack London was. St. Ah, Helena. But, um, when Napoleon was exiled, indeed, yes. Beautiful. There's no airport, although the British government is threatening to build one, but they're in such economic straits that they probably won't. You can only get there by sea. But there is a ship it leaves England every 12 weeks from Portland, one of the most wonderful sea journeys in the world. When the English beat the French and wanted to uh, exile Napoleon, that was probably their best bet at putting him somewhere where he couldn't come back. But they didn't know about a place called Tristan. That is the most remote inhabited island on the planet. Um, 250 people there live in on a volcano, a little town called Edinburgh of the Seven Seas, and uh, only seven families, so there's been a great deal of interbreeding with some slight genetic problems as a result. Um, they don't do a great deal. They fish and they grow potatoes, but they love their life. And there was a episode when they were all, there was a huge eruption of their volcano in the 1960s, uh, the Royal Navy came and rescued them because they were a British possession and took them to an army base near Southampton in England. They hated it. They hated motor cars and all the noise and bustle. They hated elevators and offices and things. And once the eruption had uh, died down, they all voted to come back, and the British honoured their request, planted them back on the island, and there they have lived ever since in sort of living a life of blameless and very contented isolation. Wow. Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N. Now, for over 40 years, you've had a passion for the Atlantic, and I, I know from your book you, you care about its um, environmental well-being, uh, regions where they used to say, in cod we trust. Well, there's not a lot of cod there. Tell us your concerns about the modern perils of the Atlantic. Yes, we um, maltreat the ocean some quite seriously. We overfish it. That's a big problem, and notoriously, we did this in the waters off Newfoundland, the Grand Banks, um, where there was a once an incredible wealth of fish. It used to be said, jokingly, but not entirely, that you could walk from Iceland to Canada mm. on the backs of these enormous silvery fish. There were so many of them. And if you see a film like Captain's Courageous, so the Rudyard Kipling uh, story with Freddie Bartholomew, you'll see this abundance. Well, thanks to some terrible decisions that the Canadian politicians took back in the 1990s, there is now no fish left at all. No cod on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Utterly devastated. In the South Atlantic, the situation's quite the reverse. We learned a lesson from the Canadian experience and the Patagonian toothfish, which you probably don't recognize under that name, but it is what you see on your menus as Chilean sea bass, which is neither Chilean nor bass, but it is from the sea, that's true. That's um, in abundance, and it's uh, because it's very cleverly and strictly policed. And so the overfishing that went on in the north doesn't go on in the south, and that fishery, I think, is more or less okay. But we pollute the seas, we put nuclear waste into it, thinking it's big enough and will dilute everything. Well, it's not, and an awful lot of our fish are contaminated, most notably, of course, with mercury, which is why you must never eat bluefin tuna. It's endangered, but it's also very poisonous. So we've done a lot of damage to the sea, and uh, woe betide us, I think. You write quite convincingly about these virtual highways of boats and planes going back and forth across the Atlantic. That is another problem. I mean, 414,000 aircraft pass between Gander and Shanwick, which are the big North Atlantic Oceanic radar stations, and they all emit a huge amount of particulate material and gases which pollute the atmosphere above the ocean, but also the ships, the enormous container ships which ply back and forth, hauling cargo between you know Liverpool and Baltimore and Montreal and Cadiz and so forth, they emit from their funnels huge amounts, similarly, of particulates. And you can see on special maps, you can see the trails, which are almost permanent, of gases hmm. in the, on the sea lanes. So we do a lot of atmospheric damage. So there's undersea damage by overfishing, by polluting the sea, and oversea damage by using the wrong kind of fuels in our ships and our aircraft. So just like buildings lining a highway with a constant parade of trucks would get caked in a sort of a airborne pollution... You could say the Atlantic Ocean is caked in pollution caused by the air travel and the sea travel. It certainly is. And of course, we're unaware of this when we go in and bathe or when we stand on a headland and look at the crashing waves. We think this is a symbol of, of purity and cleanliness. Well, mm -hmm. sadly, it's not. The Atlantic, like all the oceans, is in trouble. And because it's the busiest of all the oceans, mm -hmm. you know, far and ahead, it is suffering most of all.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the Atlantic with Simon Winchester, whose new book is called Atlantic. Great sea battles, heroic discoveries, titanic storms, and a vast ocean of a million stories. And there are a million more things I'd like to talk to you about, but we're out of time. But let me close by asking you, what intrigues you most about what lies on the bottom of the Atlantic? I think the most intriguing thing I found was not right on the bottom, but near the surface, as a matter of fact, which is a beast which in 1989 was first discovered. It's a little beast called Prochlorococcus. Sounds very unfamiliar. Discovered in 89, turns out to be the most numerous creature on our planet. There are more of them than anything else, and it indulges in photosynthesis, meaning that it absorbs carbon dioxide and emits oxygen. And the extraordinary statistic is that something that we didn't know existed until 20 years ago, one in five of the breaths that all of us take every day, one in five, was produced by this little creature. You can't find much more intriguing stuff than that. Fascinating. We've been talking with Simon Winchester, and Simon's new book is Atlantic, in a vast ocean of a million stories. Simon, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Has spending time in a beautiful place inspired the poet in you? Send us a haiku about your travels. There's a link in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We might even share it with our listeners. Here are some examples we thought you'd enjoy. Phil Kincaid from Durham, New Hampshire, brings back these memories of Burgundy in a haiku. Dawn on Vizelay. Bells below pierce seafoam fog. Smiles, St. Bernard's ghost. Krista Staklosis from Buffalo, New York, wrote us this haiku to commemorate her visit to Ypres in Flanders. During World War I, it was a site of fierce battles between German and Allied forces. It includes a memorial ceremony every evening since 1928 for the soldiers whose remains were never found. Here, the men in gate where taps is played every night. So many names carved. And Lisa Harkey of West Branch, Iowa, made this discovery in southern France. It never snows in Toulouse, but here I am, still, strolling through snowflakes. How can traveling to places that are off the tourist map bring you closer to your fellow man and closer to God as well? Up next, Jim Wallace is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves, and we'll talk about travel as a spiritual act. For me, you can travel as a political act, and you can also travel as a spiritual act. It's a great opportunity when you travel around the world to broaden your perspective and and better understand our position here on this planet. I'm joined today by Jim Wallace. He's the founder and editor of Sojourners magazine. He calls himself a peace and social justice advocate, a progressive evangelical. Jim Wallace, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Now, you founded Sojourners. That in itself is a sort of a travel term. Yeah, Sojourners means to be on a journey, uh, on the way. You're a traveler, pilgrim. It's actually a metaphor for the church or the people of God or people who have a, a spiritual sense of who they are or being in but not of the world or having a global perspective and not just a narrow national one. You just said something that I find very interesting. Something fundamental to a Christian's faith is having a global perspective. Well, absolutely. I mean, when Jesus started this, it was a movement, not an institution. Uh, It wasn't a church. It was a movement, and it was a global movement, international. And so we ought to have more in common with people who share our faith around the world than just those who inhabit the same country. My wife's a Brit, Church of England minister, one of the first women ordained over there. She got here, and she said, don't they know that 
God Bless America isn't found in the Bible. I've learned most about the world hmm. from going to places I wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> That's where I learned most about the world. From going to places you weren't supposed to be. Give yeah. me an example. Well, I was raised in Detroit, but in, uh, in white Detroit. Mm-hmm. And a few miles or blocks away in black Detroit, life is very different. And I kept asking, how come we've never been there? How come we never had a black preacher? And they said, oh, you're too young to understand. Or Why is life so different in black Detroit, I'd say. I was 14 years old, and they just say, you'll understand when you get older. Or we don't know, but they gave me one honest answer. If you keep asking this question, you're going to get into trouble. <laughs> and that proved to be true. <laughs> I went in the city, and I got jobs alongside young black men my age. But I realized we lived in different countries. So you can go inner city travel here in the United States uh, and, I mean, and go to another country. It's, it is. And people can live their whole life and never even never, know that country exists. Never see it. Or in South Africa once, I was in a black township. And it was, it was just completely barren and, and the people were desperately poor. And literally two minutes away, I was in this white hmm. suburb. And the people in that white suburb had, didn't even know of the existence of this black township. And yet the people from the township mm-hmm. would come and clean their houses and mm-hmm. take care of their lawns and all, all the rest. So two countries side by side. And going to the one I wasn't supposed to be in taught me most about the one I was already in. During the Contra War in Nicaragua, do you remember that? We had this mercenary army that we put together. And right. It was attacking civilians, and that story wasn't being told here. So uh, these Christians from North Carolina came to see me one day. They said, we were just in Jalapa on the northern frontier. And while we were there, the shelling of that village stopped. The Contras stopped shooting those mortars into because there were Americans there and they didn't want to kill Americans and get in trouble with Washington. And so they, they said, would you come here more often? Ah, so <laughs> Send some of your friends. And that's said, the, the whole um, human shield sort of approach. Well, they, they, while they were there, that protected the people in the little village of Jalapa. And they, you know, they farm with them, they work with them, they got their kids and so we sent uh, – we started something called Witness for Peace. We sent 5,000 people from this country to the war zones of Nicaragua. Uh, and it was a transforming experience for each one of them. And they came back not just against a war as a sort of political thing, but these were their friends. These were places and people that they had been. So I remember I was yeah. one time doing the commissioning for a delegation from Cleveland. And in the middle of that, I got a call. And Okotal, tiny city next to, uh, to Jalapa, had just been attacked by the Contras. And there were people literally lying in the streets who had been killed. And the Marino sisters called and told me the story. Well, in that room, people began to cry. And I said, what's the matter? They said, that's where we were in Okotal two weeks ago. Oh, no. I and- wonder what happened to Jose or Maria. They began to cry and pray. In, these are Clevelanders. Mm-hmm. And we held hands and prayed for the people of Okotal by name. Hmm. And as soon as we were done, they just shot out of the room. Uh, they went to the media, the newspapers, TV, and told the story of what had happened in Okotal. And so you had 5,000 activists against the war in Nicaragua because they had been there. Because and they had been there. These people were now their friends. Right. And their friends were in danger. When you travel, you gain an empathy for people who are having epic struggles sure. that you wouldn't know otherwise. Marching with the people in El Salvador, remembering the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero, mm-hmm. you pass a monument in the capital city, San Salvador, that looks just like the Vietnam Monument. It's a knockoff of the Vietnam Memorial, mm-hmm. and it's got 50,000 names chipped into it. Yeah. Each of them died in that civil war. Well, when the Jesuits were killed in San Salvador by death squads that our government was actually paying for. Uh, the Jesuits here went down, and they took pictures right away, and there was these slaughtered brothers. They came back, and we, I went with the Jesuits. We knelt and prayed outside the White House with those pictures, with those terrible photos. And the Jesuits, these are their brothers who were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, these weren't foreigners. These were their Jesuit. And the bond was just so deep and, and so strong. And I find that when I got a call from the leading pastor in Nicaragua, he said, they're going to invade Nicaragua. They're going to invade. Please stop them. (laughs) I said, stop them. How can I stop them? And we decided to go to our congressional offices, the U.S. was to invade Nicaragua, and stay there until a debate happened in the Congress or the invasion stopped or we would be taken to jail. Well, 
90,000 people made that pledge, the pledge of resistance. And when, I learned later, when they decided whether or not to invade Nicaragua, it was the domestic cost of having to put, and half of mm-hmm. them were Catholic nuns. Mm-hmm. They'd have had to put them in jail. Well, these Catholics caused there. such a problem, well, don't they? Well, they've been in Nicaragua. They, they had they seen empathized. the truth. They empathized, and they had friends. The Catholics I met in Central America, many of them were excommunicated, and they said part of our vow of obedience to the church is disobedience to the church. Right, right. right. Sometimes, and Dr. King taught me this a long time ago, sometimes when the law is being used to hurt people or to preserve injustice, you have to break that law. That's what Christians have done over the years. Uh, When I've been to the war zones in places where most Americans never get to go, or in the Middle East, and I've seen the checkpoints, and I've seen, you know, uh, kids living on garbage dumps in Manila. They're living on the garbage dumps in Manila. You just, you just have a different perspective. Social change happens when our perspective changes. It's not just a matter of having a political view. or You well, have to change your perspective to see the world in a different way for change to occur. And if you're a person of faith who wants to get guidance from the Bible you become able to read the Bible through third-world eyes. Well, absolutely. Uh, I was in the Philippines one time staying with a friend of mine who was going out to the poorest of the poor communities. And we had it was liberation theology at its most basic level. And we had a Bible study in this, this home. And this young woman who was the mother, who she had walked two hours to get food for us. They the special meal was anchovies in the rice. You know? uh-huh. And then she led a Bible study that night with the whole community in that house uh-huh. about what the scriptures meant for that week's lectionary. And they would together present the sermon on Sunday morning. But that's a liberation theology approach which applies yeah. it concretely and, and boldly to their life today. Yeah, and what they were doing is they were, they were fighting the loggers who were cutting down the, the forests on their hillsides causing erosion to occur to take their farming away and the rivers were being polluted. They were fighting that battle against these outside corporations and they won their battle. But the foundation of it was their Bible study. And and the courage, I remember in South Africa once in the heart of the struggle, uh, I was sent to this township because they wanted to show me around. This young man meets me, Jam Jam, and uh, he was told I was coming and he would show me around. So he takes me around his whole village the township. And there are these military strong points in every single black township in South Africa. And sure enough, before long, we were surrounded by military vehicles, automatic weapons. And we were just, it was me and, and Jam Jam, and that was it. Taken in and interrogated by the South African security police, guns aimed, aimed at our heads. And they said to Jam Jam, we know who you are. You were, in, you were in prison. And you know what happened to you in prison? He was tortured. He says, if you keep behaving this way, you're going to go right back there. Jam Jam pulls out a New Testament out of his shirt puts down. He says, sir, I'm a Christian and I'm not afraid. And they let us go because I was with him and I was a pastor in American. And on the way out of town, I said, Jam Jam, why did you take a risk in, in showing a stranger around your township? He says, well, he says, because I want the people of my township to know that they have white comrades too. And that someday we're going to have to learn to live together. And I, I've been in jail. I've been tortured. I've, they've done all they can do to me. I'm just, I'm just going forward now. I'm just going forward now. Now, when I find that kind of courage, or kids in black townships who told me at 14 when I'd say, will your children breathe free air in South Africa? 14-year-old kids looked me in the eye and said, I will see to it. I will see to it. Now, that was 10 years before I was at the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. But when I saw that hope and that courage, I knew that apartheid was doomed. It was finished because young people decided, 14-year-olds worried about their kids, that's what changes the world. So how would I have ever experienced that if I didn't go there? Hmm. If I just read books about South Africa, read policy statements, I've been changed and transformed when I meet the kids in townships or in garbage dumps and they tell me, what their hopes for their future are. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and we're looking at travel as a spiritual act with Reverend Jim Wallace of Sojourners Magazine and Sojo.net. For 40 years, Sojourners has been a community of activists. 
It started out as a group of seminarians who struggled with how their faith should inform political issues, such as the Vietnam War. Today, it's a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. The organization publishes a magazine and works with different religious and political communities to tackle poverty and justice issues from a progressive faith-based perspective. Our guest, Jim Wallace, is the editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine and the CEO of the nonprofit organization behind it. His books include Rediscovering Values, A Guide for Economic and Moral Recovery, and The Great Awakening, Seven Ways to Change the World. He posts a blog at sojo.net, that's S-O-J-O, and he's on Twitter, at Jim Wallace. And Jim spells his last name W-A-L-L-I-S. Jim, when you think about liberation theology, it's, it's um, complicated by political and economic ideology. Liberation theology is written off by a lot of people as socialist or, or something. Today, not back in the Sandinistas and Contratimes, but today in the developing world, is there still liberation theology? Well, the, uh, the heart of that really was the experience of ordinary people who were trying to understand their faith in the midst of their own circumstances. So today, when I go out and speak, half the audience is under 30 every single time. And half of them are under 25 because this new generation is globalized. Mm-hmm. They've gone on mission trips all over the world. They've seen, they've tasted, they've touched, they've smelled a different kind of existence. And they've seen the 3 billion people who live on less than $2 a day. That's half, half of, of humanity. God's children. And that is the most important political fact of the world that is never mentioned, never quite said out loud. But a whole bunch of young people of faith now have seen that around the world. They've gone on all these trips and they've been transformed. Uh, my nephews and nieces went to Haiti just uh, last month, and they came back different people. Yeah. And I've seen that again and again. So I don't think people learn as much. It's it's not the book or the lecture or the ideology. It's going and seeing uh, firsthand, meeting people, becoming friends across boundaries. That's what changes our perspective. The world looks different. When you come home from that, it's a culture shock often. When it's culture see, shock and reverse when you get home. It's culture shock and reverse when you get home. Right. You see often we're so caught up with petty things, small things, mm-hmm. very minor things. Mm-hmm. And you've just been with people who are – it's life and death for them. And you've seen it, tasted it, touched it. You know, when Bono, he often told me what transformed him from being a, you know, a musician who had these concerns, he was one of in Ethiopia in a refugee camp. Really? Bono, Bono, Bono got clued into all this stuff actually by going to Ethiopia? Oh, yeah. He was in Ethiopia in, in a camp. And, of course, he's a big star. And, right. and, and so this father hands him his uh, little infant son. Uh-huh. Now, as a rock star used to the photo op, you know, he smiles, holds a kid. Then he's going to give the boy back to his dad. And the father says, no, no, please, would you take him with you? If he stays here, he's going to die. My son's going to die. Tears in his eyes. A father says, take him with you. I'm the dad of a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. I can't imagine handing my son to someone saying, take him away to save his life. Bono couldn't do that because of the legalities, but he says to this day, I carry that boy with me. Oh, my goodness. Now, wherever I go. But he had to go and see it. He couldn't just read articles and books. And This isn't sort of an ideological commitment. It's a human one. But the big step is, I think, to ask why and seek economic justice, and that's the real challenge. Mother Teresa is so beloved, but part of that is because she never asked why. <laughs> well, Dom Helder Camara, who is the archbishop in Brazil, like Oscar Romero... Uh, Oscar Romero asked why. Yeah, and what, what Camara said was, when I feed the hungry, they, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're hungry, they call me a communist. You know, Glenn Beck now calls me a communist and a Marxist and a socialist because I talk about social justice. And he says, when you talk about social justice, you're really a communist. And I said, no, this is integral to what the Bible says. At the heart of the gospel is the call to justice. Personal transformation, absolutely, but social transformation as well. And so it's a scary thing. You know, Glenn Beck says, Jim Wallace is one of the most dangerous men in America. Well, from his point of view, I hope that's true. I'm sitting at the table with one of the most dangerous men in America (laughs) right now. Whoa. When you ask why people are hungry or poor or homeless, not just uh, let's help them out, 
but why they are poor. That raises the issues of justice, uh, fairness. The prophets in the Bible again and Mm -hmm. again talk about things like land, labor, and capital, employers, employees, rulers, princes, widows, and orphans. This is what they talk about, and they're issues of justice. You know, the amazing thing to me, Jim Wallace, is that Americans are so well-traveled, but Mm -hmm. we forget that you don't have to go back to Hawaii again and again and again and learn nothing. Well, or you know this well, Americans go to resorts and there's like there's walls, you know, a block or two blocks away. And you know what? Talk to the people who are serving you. Normally, they they have one change of clothes, one shirt for their job, and that's all they've got. Now, when I've been in those places, not very often, I often go back to their homes. And I talk to them for a while. We hang out, and I say, where, where do you live? And they say, uh, I say, I say, why don't we go have a cup of coffee where you live? Anybody could do that. That's well, a travel but, tip. Yeah, but there's all these signs up that says, don't do that. Right. Don't go within one block of the hotel because it's dangerous. And I said, hey, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm from Detroit. I'm from D.C. I've done gang truces, you know, with Crips and Bloods. I'm sure these streets aren't tougher than my streets. <laughs> but that's where you learn. And you learn how, how they barely survive on that job and have literally only one shirt they wash every single night. So point is, you could go to Cancun or Mazatlan, and one afternoon you could just adventure inland yeah, instead you're told of the beach. Not to, you're told not you're to. in a bus with... Yeah, but you can right. do that. You can broaden your perspective and come home with what I think is the most exciting souvenir, a better understanding of this planet. Jim Wallace founder and editor of Sojourners Magazine. Thank you so much for sojourning with us today. Tell your folks to go where they're not supposed to be, and that's where they'll learn the most about their lives and their world. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war and poverty. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the CBC in Toronto and to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading today's listener haiku. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss. They're available to download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on our website at ricksteves.com or as an app at iTunes. No more backwards thinking, thinking Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.